sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally, Sally. Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. Now, Donald Trump announced his bid for re-election last night, and it is tough to turn around podcasts to keep up with the 24-hour news cycle, especially when Donald Trump is involved. So there are two ways I have that can help with that. First is YDHTY's weekly email newsletter, which you can register for on ydhty.com slash news. The second is on TikTok. Yes, I am on TikTok, busting a move. You could find me at you don't have to yell. I don't know how to search it. Just search on TikTok. You'll see me. Now, getting back to big picture stuff. The issue of energy has been front and center since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and has only become more pressing with inflation on the rise. And traditional economic models, such as the ones central bankers use to fight inflation, consider energy just another sector of the economy. But what if those models are flawed? Now, in this episode, I speak with Jed Dorsheimer, Group Head of Energy and Sustainability for Investment Bank William Blair, co-founder of the Biophysical Economics Institute and a former senior executive for a Fortune 500 company, as well as an advisor for U.S. energy policy during the Obama administration. We've talked a lot about whether the last 20 years of economic growth have been real on this podcast, and this conversation added a huge piece to this puzzle. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. One of the things that I found interesting, too, as I was looking through some of the materials you sent over, Mm -hmm. is there was this analogy used of the economy being like a tree in a way. And a tree has a certain phase of growth, and then it reaches a sort of a stasis Mm -hmm. where it just doesn't grow anymore. But it still kind of maintains itself. And do you view economic growth or economic activity through that lens in the sense that maybe there's a point where we don't measure the economy by growth anymore, but by some other metric in a way. Like it's yeah. not. Well, you know growth will always happen. And so every lo- living organism, actually, Jeffrey West, I think, in his book Scale, talks about this. And why is a blue whale limited to 125 feet? And he compares that with with cities, in, which is also a living organism. And And so when you look through the lens of, a living organism, I think that's where where the value starts to come about. And a tree certainly falls into that category. And in the work and in explaining this to investors, which is my day job, what I try and do is I say, if you've ever tried to lose weight, you're going to understand these concepts because like, take me for example, and you know, I'm not running right now. So I have a relatively low metabolic threshold in terms of my break even. And so if I eat more than 2,200 calories, like I'm going to grow. It's not Mm -hmm. maybe not the growth that I want. Right. But but I will grow and and the growth will be real. And if I eat less than that, I will lose weight and and that will be real, too. And so we can look at, at the economy in a very similar way where 
our economy as a living organism requires energy. And if the, and it has a metabolic break even, and we can kind of calculate what that is. Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at a hundred kilogram person on average for the 7.8 billion people. It's basically like a hundred watt light bulb that's shining all the time, 24 mm -hmm. seven. Yeah. And if I double that and I say, okay, well, you know, people are going to need to eat. So what's the food and the, the energy needed for plant growth and the fibers that we'll consume. So let's just double that. So about 2.4 terawatt hours of energy, but, but our, our economy on a daily basis is consuming 17 terawatt hours of energy. So it shows that we are part of this much bigger and more complex system, right? Makes mm -hmm. sense. We have to pay for the ability for the lights to come on anytime we flick a switch or the water to run the plumbing, this, the, you know, the streets that are paved, all of this stuff is like a treadmill that is complexity arises. Um, the energy to kind of just get that break even goes higher and higher. And so our, our EROI or energy return on energy invested is about a six to one sort of metabolic break even. So anything we're putting into the system that's above that is going to result in real growth and anything below will take down that growth rate. So, and I guess before we go on too, we should probably distinguish between, let's call it good economic growth and bad economic growth. And can you just explain that distinction for the listener? Well, let's look at since the economic downturn, the financial crisis of 2008, we've grown debt at three times that of GDP. So we have had real growth, but one must wonder, is that growth good if we're growing debt uh, or using capital as a way to artificially grow? And those are some of the complex issues that we need to understand. And I think that our framework of energy return on energy invested at point of use is a way to unpack that. If we take the long view of it, like we look at this historically and we look at how societies have traditionally grown, is it fair to say that civilizations have grown and they've shrunk in line with their physical constraints? And part two to that question is, have we kind of decoupled from that process in some way? In I don't believe so. I think the decoupling comes from McKinsey and a lot of very smart people who have put that out. And I, I completely disagree with that. And this is one of the problems of our neoclassical economic framework is it, it goes to this idea that we are somehow superior or separate from the system that we are a part of. There's only been one time in human history that population has grown or decreased more than 10% which is the Industrial Revolution. So we have to ask, okay, what was it about the Industrial Revolution that changed that? I mean, even like the bubonic plague, the scientific revolution, if you go back in history, they didn't change population. And so, so I would put forth that what is different is we were able to capture surplus energy. And because of the net energy and the surplus energy from coal and then ultimately oil and, and natural gas, et cetera, we were able to grow because though the energy return on the invested energy that we put in to get those energy sources was far greater than the economic metabolic threshold, which allowed for real growth to occur. One of the things that 
absolutely scared me to death was when I was reading Carrie King's The Economic Superorganism. And I actually had him on the show. This is a while back now. And during the Industrial Revolution, you can see that population growth. But then when we transition to petroleum, that's when things just just go parabolic effectively. And you see an explosion in crop yields, you see an explosion in population. And, and I think what frightened me the most is how dependent we are on a resource that we aren't making any more of. One question I have, because you mentioned the neoclassical economic mm -hmm. model, what are economic models getting wrong when it comes to how they account for energy? Most modern economic models look at labor and capital is is the productive inputs to get the outputs and it tends to ignore the role of energy or treats energy as the gdp output which is about five percent of mm -hmm. gdp but we're seeing this play out real time right now with what's happening over in europe in terms of an attempt to nationalize energy is a function of stability of the social systems. And the cost of that is not 5%. That's why my basis is that energy is kind of the primary foundation from which we can build off of, and it's governed by immutable laws that have never known to be broken. And so it's a pretty, you know, rock solid foundation is to think about how to, uh, to build from. It doesn't answer everything, but it's, it's yeah. a good place to start, I guess, is, is how I would frame that. Yes. And I would also put forth that if we go back in time, the classical economists did think about things this way because it was a relatively simple economy. And then, and then there was a, you know, a move from that. And then, and I think the timing of the move is important to understand the context because energy was rather ubiquitous in the fifties and sixties. It wasn't really until you got to the seventies where where energy started to become part of a bigger conversation because of the crises with oil. And so it's one of these things where we didn't have to worry about it and now we do. And so mm -hmm. how does that change the inputs? And I guess that's really what I wanted to come back around. I think that's the important point of the takeaway, not necessarily the, the, the details, but the fact that the inputs are changing and this has a ripple effect or, or butterfly effect throughout the rest of the economic system. Yeah. And if, so if I'm hearing you correctly, and it sounds like we've never had to take energy into account because we've all, we've always been in, in a way, we've always been able to take it for granted. So if we look at the economy pre-industrial revolution, the energy input was typically food or maybe wind. And that was either consumed by livestock, consumed by people or harnessed via windmills and sails. And that's kind of how the economy moved. And it was very basic. And there wasn't necessarily a cap on that outside of you know, what you could grow on a particular parcel of land. We get into the industrial revolution. We start adopting fossil fuels. We get to the point where we adopt petroleum. We've never adjusted our economic models to take into account these new energy sources because we've never had to. And so now we're at a point where we're not necessarily, you know, running out right away, but we're working on a dwindling supply. And so now there's a need for a new way of accounting for energy in the economy to take this into consideration. Is that right? Yes. But I would just add, there's a lot of sort of this cohort that will talk about, well, peak oil or, you know, and they're brilliant people that are going to take and say, look at the Hubbard's curve. And I, I don't fall into that camp. And I don't think you need to. All we have to know is that 
I'll use the, I, I usually use the Beverly Hillbillies movie because I'm old, one, and two, my <laughs> name's Jed. And so Jed Clampett, the idea that, that <laughs> sure. you shoot a shotgun in, in uh, Texas and out comes black gold, that's not that far off from the truth. You know, you used to be able to literally hit a pick or shovel in the ground and out, out of the ground is going to literally gush oil. We don't have that luxury anymore. I mean, we're drilling down five, seven miles to access these reserves. And so so it doesn't matter if, we, if we've already passed peak. The point is the capital intensity and the amount of energy to get the same fuel out of the ground has gone up. And mm. I can't, that is an objective statement. It's not subjective. The, the, the cost structure has gone up because of this sort of, we access energy reserves that are easiest to access first. And so we've already depleted and kind of gone after the easy to access systems that exist, which means that geologically the fossil fuels that we are accessing are becoming harder and harder or therefore costing more and more. And so at some point, the risk is that the energy that you're gonna get out is gonna be less than the energy that you have to expend. I want to get into the energy sources in just a second, but before we get into that, I want to jump back to something you said earlier, which is you mentioned that the inputs have to change. So how exactly does our thinking about energy and our thinking about the economy need to change? I mean, this is what we're doing at William Blair. My day job is I am helping investors understand as our system becomes more complex, you have to un better understand what these changes mean and how that's going to ripple through. And the bridge that I, I'm building commercially is that by looking at the world through this lens, we can understand certain secular trends because okay. it is my argument that if, if we look at energy as an organizing principle around value creation, that that can give us better, greater clarity when coupled with traditional financial analysis than using simple just financial analysis alone because mm -hmm. it's it's akin to trying to find a, a needle in a haystack whereas by looking at the energy as an organizing principle we can select down and have a pretty good idea of of whether or not there's fertile ground to um to uh, to, to dig into and, and that's that's a, really what we're doing is we're saying that this framework allows us to drill an assay to understand whether or not there's going to be greater stores in this area that we're going to go hunting. And yet we're not doing that from a from a natural resource perspective. We're looking at that from a commercial secular theme and stock perspective. This is going to be a tough question to answer, but I just recently read a story about how China's hydropower industry is suffering because their rivers are running dry. Rivers are at their lowest low level ever. They're not able to generate the same amount of hydropower. That's a huge source of electricity in the country. Is there a way to price in the effects of climate change into a model in a way? So is there a way to price in how use of a particular resource might ultimately impact the economy in the long term and a way to incentivize that or a way to avoid it? I think, so the answer is yes. I mean, and again, I, <clears throat> there's a lot of people smarter than me in these fields. I mean, what I try and do and is be in a position to pull on people that have domain expertise in water. I would uh, suggest uh, Gabe Collins and 
Gopal Reddy have done some excellent work here on, in, in particular, China and China's water problem. And many of the regions in China are actually dry and below the UN statistic of what's considered livable. And, and I, I don't think a lot of people, I mean, you point out the hydroelectric, which is important, but water is critical for every energy process. So for example, you literally can't burn coal without water. I know this sounds silly, but you have to wash that coal first. So I would say that the water problem is, is one that, like a, any other natural resource, such as nat gas or oil, when you deplete something, it becomes a very difficult problem to to solve. And it's not easy. And, and many might say, well, we have the technology of for desalinization and we have plenty of salt water on the planet. Both true statements. However, you then have to look at what is the energy that it takes to desalinate a gallon of water. And that mm-hmm. is an incredibly energy intensive process. So again, it, it comes back to that first principle in terms of my argument. So whether we're discussing food and whether we're discussing uh, fertilizer for yields or we're discussing water and desalinization or carbon capture, for example, all of these are energy problems or opportunities that come back to what is your surplus energy and how can you use that? When we look at and we'll just take America, you know, we, we really want as Americans, we want the same lifestyle. We want to pay the same or less. And we now want to have a lower impact on the environment. When you look at the future state, is this possible or are there trade-offs that are going to need to be made in terms of either cost or lifestyle? Uh, There's always trade-offs in everything. Yeah. I mean, it's not possible for you to buy a Tesla and then get on a Gulfstream private chat and say that, you know, I'm I'm green. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's so yes. However, the wealth of a nation is a function of its natural resources largely divided by its population. And so the benefit of North America is we have a relatively low population with the amount of resources and we have excellent borders because oceans are the best borders. And I do buy into the idea of that once you reach a certain level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that there's a responsibility to demonstrate how we should be stewarding our resources. Because there is this argument uh, that I hear all the time in terms of, from a global perspective, if we focus on decarbonization and other countries aren't, that, um, you know, it's not as if the jet stream is going to no borders. And so aren't you just making your own country less competitive? And I just don't subscribe to that. But I would also come back and say that our objective framework and our methodology sidesteps all of that. It gets away from the debate of what's the subjective, this is good, this is bad, because we can look at an EROI point of use metric that is very low and that we make a conscious decision to subsidize because we believe that it's going to rise over time and therefore you need rights law to kick in with scale, et cetera. Mm. My point is historically, we're going blind in these policy decisions or these decisions. And so this provides guidance that we may agree from a social perspective that this, this is good. And we should do that. What we shouldn't do is do something 
hoping for different results without knowing what the data is. So this is a very data-driven objective framework that then allows for us to add in subjectivity in terms of what those guardrails are. And that is a critical difference in point. There's been a lot of talk about the ESG framework of investing as a way to address some of the issues around, uh, you know, around energy consumption, around climate change. Before we get into that, could you just explain briefly what that framework is for the listener who might not be familiar? Sure. So the United Nations has a framework for principles for responsible investing, where you can sign up as a signatory and you're agreeing to follow a set of uh, standards or SDGs. And then would be a company would be critiqued on environmental, social, or governance and criteria that that help meet that. And so it's a it's a scoring mechanism or or metric. And then there are rating agencies that provide these scores for different companies that are out there. And most companies will typically pay consultants to look at their business to have a sustainability or ESG report to then push to the public or to the rating agencies, how they meet or or don't meet, although I would say the vast majority of uh, consultant-driven sustainability reports are positive. Most don't, uh, <laughs> Go uh, figure. You know, self, self-scoring mechanisms are often <laughs> that way. Um, so uh, uh, in that framework, kind of all falls under the umbrella of ESG. And do you think the ESG framework really focuses maybe too much on the moral and not enough on the functional in a way when compared to your model? Yes. I think ESG is a very well-intended process that thus far has is, is not matured to the point where it is, uh, it is shown efficacy in terms of having a, a, an effect on the, on the corporations. Other than the G, I think that they published a recent, uh, some recent data showing that um, from a governance perspective, that's kind of the easiest one to to address in terms of diversity. But certainly in terms of the the E and the S and the scoring mechanisms that are out there are are not rigorous to the point where there is a lot of subjectivity. And therefore, you can find that the correlation between different rating agencies can vary widely on the same companies. And there's Mm -hmm. also the other issue, which hasn't, to my knowledge, been addressed, but investors still want a greater return. And so if you're adding in negative externalities of of something that was ignored, that's going to lower the profit of a company, at least in the near term. COVID would be a good example here, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of look at the economic cost, you know, at least seven trillion dollars. And had you planned for that ahead of time, could you have avoided that cost? And I think there's been a lot of studies that have shown yes. So when you look at the negative externalities and and account for those, ESG will need data over a longer period of time to show that the overall returns are therefore greater and therefore maximizing value. And I think as others look to adopt more sophisticated strategies and add things in to help with clarification, and perhaps the scope one, two, and three will do some of this, that 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 should make ESG more robust and more objective and and less subjective. And I think that would be a good thing. You brought up COVID. And one thing I've been dying to talk with you about is the use of monetary policy and the use of debt as a way to wallpaper over crises. And of course, 
we met the COVID pandemic with enormous fiscal stimulus, enormous debt. And that's a way we've dealt with challenges for the last 20 years. How does that mess with the signals around the pricing of energy? Sure. So, you know, as we talked about, if if we have the metabolic break even, you will either get wealth creation from that, or we could use capital in the form of debt to make something look more attractive. There's a cost to that. And so if we look at energy production plus change of debt, simply put over the past 200 years, you're going to get very close, if not exact, to GDP, world GDP. And so we have been increasing debt at a rate far faster than that of GDP, which has to ask the question, are we really growing or are we just growing in nominal terms versus uh, real terms? And my argument is that the, I don't know if it's an argument, but my position is that the more energy systems that you put into the economy that that are lower than that break-even, you have to use more debt just to keep the treadmill operating because as complexity Mm. goes up, it increases that metabolism. And so the question is, at some point, if we're paying our mortgages with our credit cards, it's fine as long as we can get new credit cards. But if we reach the limit of the credit cards or nobody is willing to give us more credit, you know, how do you continue that? Because then it it takes on an inertia of its own. And I think you're seeing that play out. You're seeing it, you know, play out in terms of an initial inflationary energy shock. But the flip side of that is one that I think is probably more deflationary. And in understanding how energy's role in that is really critical. So for example, if we found, let's say, let's say that you come up with this new a source of energy. I don't know. Let's call it nuclear fusion, for example. Yeah. You know, and it has an enormous amount high EROI and therefore surplus. And um, and so we deploy that, and it results in this hundred to one EROI uh, mm-hmm. at point of use. So the net energy would be very high on this. That would solve a lot of the problems that you're seeing in terms of debt. You would be because you would grow real wealth and you wouldn't have some of the problems that you're seeing today. You'd instantly solve inflation and and then you would be able to grow in real terms. So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly and and keep me honest here, it, it sounds as if what we've done is we've kind of used debt as a way to wallpaper over the fact that we are consuming more that that effectively our return as you said our return on energy investment is in the negative effectively and we're not getting more back for what we're pumping into the economy is that did i hear you right or is that no i would so i'm not so sure that it's that it's that dire i would say that the more technologies we put into the system that have a lower than break-even energy return it creates a drain on the system and therefore requires more debt. Now, I want to point out that in a fiat currency, so when we look at the end of Bretton Woods, when you're on a physical-backed currency, and going back to that would be just dev- 
devastating from a deflationary. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's it would be possible. And there are some that argue, but but it would be the equivalent of a financial nuclear disaster. Mm-hmm. But going off of that physical standard, anything physical is going to tether you to the laws of thermodynamics because all matter has a relationship to energy and all energy is going to be governed by the laws of thermodynamics. So so being on a gold standard held us somewhat closer, you know, the, uh, from getting over our skis in terms of use of debt. The move to fiat really doesn't have those guardrails. And so it allows for almost an unlimited amount of debt to be created, which makes the system more complex, which therefore mm. raises the energetic metabolism and makes it more difficult to understand if something is creating real growth or obfuscating that, as you say, papering over with the use of debt. Have you ever read the book Collapse by Jared Diamond? I have not. Okay, so uh, Jared Diamond is a brilliant professor out of UCLA. He's done a couple really good books. One was Guns, Germs, and Steel, which really talks yep. about how, if you've read that one. Okay, I did so read Collapse- that one. Yep. Great. So Collapse is his follow-up book, and it talks about various civilizations that collapsed, that disappeared, mm-hmm. and why. And the story he comes back to throughout the book is this story about this, this conversation he was having with one of his students about Easter Island. And there's a lot of mythology around Easter Island, but what the historical record shows is when human beings arrived, it was heavily forested, and they completely denuded the island mm-hmm. and were unable to get off of it because the primary mode of travel was wood-based boats. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were effectively stranded there. Now, the question one of his students asked was, what do you think the person who chopped down the last tree was thinking? Because I think when we get into these conversations about climate change versus fossil fuels, and we kind of get into that pull and tug over the future versus the current state of the economy, we can fall victim to short-term thinking. And do you feel that there are structures in place right now to keep us from falling into the trap of short-term thinking? And if not, what do we need to put into place to safeguard against that? I don't think often... you know, a short-term focus is seen as very much a negative in versus the long-term or holistic. I actually think both are needed because anyone who's a mountain climber, if you go over to Nepal and you're looking up at the at Mount Everest or any mountain for that matter at base camp, there's a, a wave of paralysis that will likely come over you. And so you know that you need to simply put one foot in front of the other and I, I think both are, are, are needed so that we can then periodically look back and measure how far we've come. And, you know, as I talked about the, you know, dieting and using energy is an organizing principle, I bring it back to the fact that most diets will fail because when you try and go from zero to 10 and you don't achieve that, then you break and come back to zero. And Mm. part of the problem with climate is when we look at a perfect solution and we say, oh, we need to do all of this, and then we don't, or we're off course on that, then it comes back to somewhat nihilistic. And I don't subscribe to that. So I think part of progress 
is about going from, if we're at a two, getting that to a three and then a four, sort of that relentless pursuit of not perfection, but progress, which I would consider sort of a near-term focus, which I think is incredibly useful. But that also does need to have the context in terms of what is the overall goal that we're trying to achieve and are we actually on track? And if not, how do we get the periodic checks to see? And my guess is that person that cut down that last tree probably wasn't aware of the consequences. And again, that's why I come back to our framework that the value is what we're trying to bring to investors is to say, you may choose to cut down that last tree, but you should understand before you're going to do that, what that actually means, what that entails, what's it going to be like to be stuck on that island versus saying that it's the subjective approach of it's good or bad to cut down that last tree, but instead to look at the objective framework and just understanding what that means. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a nice review. As I mentioned before, you can also get updates on this episode and other issues of the day via YDHTY's weekly newsletter at ydhty.com slash news. For more information on Jed's work, you can visit williamblair.com or the website of the Biophysical Economics Institute at bpeinstitute.org. Now, couple takeaways from this episode. First, Energy isn't a percentage of the economy. It is the economy. Relegating energy to the dollars exchanged for it is like relegating blood sugar to its mass. It might not be the greatest percentage, but nothing happens without it. And traditional economic models have left energy out of the equation as we've never encountered a situation where energy supplies weren't constant or growing. And with an economy now dependent on finite fossil fuels, Modern economic models have to take this into consideration. The bigger thing here is as energy supplies become more scarce and more expensive, living conditions worsen. And as living conditions worsen, political unrest and polarization get worse and the likelihood for violence increases. And we need to look at what's going on in this country and around the world as a reaction to increasing scarcity. Debt's been used to fill the gaps, but it's resulted in rising income inequality that's fueled much of the populism we see here in the U.S. and also abroad. So as we look to stabilize things, addressing the energy market is key, and using a strategy that is a bit more nuanced than drill, baby, drill is essential. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.